Good morning, everybody. Nice to see you. Warm welcome to Bankery Christian Fellowship Church. And if you're a visitor here or for your first time, a special welcome to you. Um, it's always a joy for us to be able to join together in worship of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Today, the reading is from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not come yet. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jar with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not even know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, but when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Well, every Sunday here, we spend a significant part of our service hearing what the Bible has to say. And the reason we do that is not because uh, we think it is a book that has got lots of good advice about how to live life, not because uh, simply we find it thought-provoking to do so, uh, but we do so because we have a conviction that this is where God speaks to us. This is God's Word to us. And in fact, over the summer months here, I'm going to spend some time looking at John's Gospel, and we're starting here in John chapter 2. John's Gospel is an account of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, written by John, one of Jesus' followers. And one of the things I like about John's Gospel is that he's transparent about his motives. I mean, everybody who ever sets about writing some kind of history always has something they're trying to achieve. You know, they're trying to convince you of something, aren't they? Well, John is transparent about this, and you go to the end of his book, and he says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so, um, when I'm preaching over the summer anyway, we're going to be looking at these signs that John records for us in his gospel account. Because John, the writer, is convinced by his selection of seven signs that if we uh, see those, we can be persuaded about Jesus' identity, we can be persuaded that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that we might believe in him and find life. We're going to come back to those themes later. 
Here in John 2, we have the first of those signs. And if you spotted that in verse 11, but John tells us this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. Why this sign? I suppose that's maybe one of the questions. If we know that John has been selective in choosing his signs, why this one? You know, when someone does something out of the ordinary, doesn't matter what it is, uh, whether it's some, I don't know, some great show of heroism, uh, some great self-sacrifice that they do for someone else, some uh, above and beyond extra mile demonstration of friendship and care to someone, we would say, well, what? Or actually, maybe if someone was just eccentric, we would say, what sort of person does that? How many times have you said that of someone? You've, you've seen someone's behavior, it is outside of the bounds of normal, and you say to your trusted other, I mean, what kind of person does that? That's the question John wants you to ask when you read his gospel. What sort of person does that? What sort of person turns water into wine? Prior to this, in the end of chapter 1, you find Jesus calling disciples, five of them to be precise, and he has a conversation with one of them that's recorded, a man called Nathaniel, who was from Cana, the same place where this wedding takes place. And then John records verse 1, on the third day, which is his way of saying, two days later, we're in Cana, small town in the countryside in the northernmost part of Israel, and we're set about 2,000 years ago from today. There's a wedding, and he tells us in verse 1 that Jesus' mother was there. And reading that, and also taking into account her request, which she makes of Jesus, which we'll come to in a moment, it maybe suggests that Mary, the mother of Jesus, has some kind of role at this wedding. Um, these were different times. At a function like a wedding, men and women stayed apart from each other, and the women often had the responsibility for the catering, which is perhaps why Mary is involved with this question about what are we going to do now that we've run out of wine. And Jesus, he's been invited as well, along with his disciples, maybe just the five that we've read of already in John 1. But it doesn't necessarily mean that Jesus is related to the bride or the groom. He may be, but it was normal in those times to have as big a celebration as you could for a wedding. If you could afford it, invite everyone and anyone of any kind of status in your local area. So it wouldn't be unusual to invite a local rabbi like Jesus is, certainly someone who's gathered some followers. So they're all there. But there's a crisis. The wedding party runs out of wine. And I think that's hard for us to grasp, isn't it? Um, but for the groom here, this was a disaster. This is terrible news for the groom. Jewish wedding celebrations would typically last a week. So even the guests would book a week off their work to go and help celebrate this wonderful news that these two have got married. And it was the groom's responsibility to provide everything that was required for the week of banqueting. And so if they run out of wine, nobody's going to knock on the bride's father's door as they would today, or as they used to do. No, they're going to come knocking on the groom's door. It was his job to provide. This would be the worst possible start to their married life. 
This is something that in their culture would bring shame upon the groom. Shame. And in fact, there is evidence that in in such circumstances, the bride's family could even take the groom to court to seek compensation for the shame that he has brought on them in this first week of marriage. But it's this crisis that reveals who Jesus is. That's what John wants us to think about. Who is this Jesus in the midst of this crisis? I really want to just show you two things. The first one is that there is no inside track with Jesus. What do I mean by that? In how many situations have you been in in life where you have been relieved that someone's been able to say to you, oh, don't worry about it. I know a guy who can fix that for you. I mean, anything that requires any sort of uh, uh, technical skill or DIY maintenance, if someone says to me, I know a guy who can fix that for you, they are my best friend on that day. But I mean, mean, think think whatever it could be. If you need to to take a sofa to the tip, uh, if you're you're looking to get an an entry into a, a company to find a job, you know, if someone can say, I know a guy who can... Oh, fantastic. That's what it's going to take, knowing a guy. It's clear that when it comes to Jesus, we don't get to think like that. And Mary is the example here. It's clear, isn't it, in verse 3, that Mary is doing more than just informing Jesus. You know, when she says they have no wine, she's not just giving him information. I mean, come on, if you're at home and your beloved says to you, there's no milk in the house. Well, she's not just telling you that there's no milk in the house, right? Go and get some milk in. And this is the same thing for Mary here. There's no wine. Now, I don't necessarily think she's expecting a miracle. We're told this is the first sign that Jesus has done, but she clearly has some expectation that Jesus will do something to help fix the problem. And in the same way here, Mary passes on that request, there is no wine. The response from Jesus makes us sit up a bit. Um, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I think it probably is the case that our English translation makes that sound harsher than it really is. Uh, There's no sense that Jesus is being rude to his mother here. But on the other hand, this is not exactly the warm kind of language that you would expect him to use towards his mother. What's going on? It is difficult to see this as anything other than Jesus rebuking his mother. Jesus is deliberately putting some some distance between him and his mom. And it's significant because, as John is telling us, this is the day when he does his first sign. If you like, this is the day when Jesus first goes public with his ministry. So far, he spent 30 years in a kind of backwater of Israel in obscurity, and now here he comes. He's going to step forward. He's going to do these signs to reveal his glory, to reveal his identity, and so there's a significance to this moment where Jesus steps out of the shadows and goes public. And so there is something that his own mum also needs to learn about him. And the lesson is that no one has an inside track with Jesus. 
Jesus shows that he is now working to a different timetable to what anyone else might wish for him. And that's what he's saying there, isn't it? My hour has not yet come. It's a term that comes up a lot in the Gospels, and it usually Jesus is referring to the time for something which has been appointed by God. And very often he uses it to speak about going to the cross. His hour has come, a time for something that has been appointed by God. This is the timetable that he operates to. Now that he enters into this public ministry, this is what's going to dictate his actions. This is what's going to dictate where he goes, and this is going to dictate whether and when he intervenes on certain situations. And I think what we see in this passage is his mother responds positively to the rebuke. Because look, she speaks again in verse 5. This time she speaks to the servants at the banquet, and she says, do whatever he tells you. I mean, this is a response of trusting Jesus, isn't it? She had in mind that she wanted him to set about fixing something, and Jesus says, I'm operating to a different timetable. My hour hasn't yet come. And so her response is not to nag him. Her response is to turn to the servants and say, whatever he says to do, do it. She's confident that he knows what is best. Confident that he will do what is best. There's no effort to manipulate Jesus, no trying to leverage a family connection to Jesus to get him to solve a problem. No, this is trusting him to do what he will do. And it's something that in this short exchange we see Mary has to learn. It seems that her husband Joseph was dead Surely she had relied on her firstborn son, Jesus, for so much. But here she sees that far more important than her connection to him as his mother would be her connection to him as a believer, as someone who submits to him and trusts him. I wonder, who do you think has the inside track with God. I mean, it's got to be, surely it's got to be those who go to church every week, right? They have got the inside track with God. And certainly, good people, good people, they have the inside track with God. Those, those who give generous donations to the church, surely we could guarantee them an inside track with God. Uh, maybe those whose parents are Christians, I want to tell you clearly, there is no inside track with God. When it comes to Jesus Christ, it is no good looking for the I know a guy kind of solution. That is not the way to get in with him. Too many people have their hopes in earning some kind of inside track with God. If I have enough church attendance, if I do enough good deeds, then he'll accept me, surely. He'll approve of me. He'll be more ready to listen to me. And then, therefore, the opposite is true. If I don't have that kind of inside track, 
And if the pattern of my life doesn't match up, then, he, then I've got no chance. I want to say to you today, this could not be further from the truth. And any time the Christian church has given the impression that that is what it is to know God and to belong to God, then they have told you a lie. Let me tell you about every one of the members of this church. They are sinners. They are sinners. And if there's any members of the church here who are discomfited to hear that, this was the only condition on which we accepted you. We are sinners. Sinners. And before we believed in Jesus Christ, we were rebels against God. We didn't have the inside track. We were rebelling against Him. Some were bigger rebels than others, sure, but all of us are in the same boat. We had no leverage with Jesus. We didn't know a guy. We had to come and simply believe. Believing that whatever our backgrounds might be, whatever big a mess our lives might have been, that we come to Jesus and He accepts us like that when we come simply trusting. But what is it about Jesus that draws sinners to Him? Well, in His solution here to the wine crisis at Cana, we see that Jesus replaces religious rituals with what we really need. Jesus replaces religious rituals with what we really need. Standing there at the banquet in verse 6, and I don't know, to me reading this, they seem to stand out as being out of place. They stand out like a sore thumb, these six stone water jars. And uh, John tells us that each of them hold 20 or 30 gallons. You know, they probably hold about 50 quid's worth of petrol. And uh, John tells us that they were part of the Jewish rites of purification. So their presence there was born out of this conviction that human beings are unclean, need to be purified. They're unclean before God, and so they need to do something to cleanse themselves. Uh, and so they would wash before food. In general, that's a good thing, by the way. Wash your hands before your meals. They would wash their hands before worship. They would wash themselves before a wedding banquet every day. And so in Israel in those days, some had a very strict code of hand washing. And it wasn't one of those laws that you could find back in the Old Testament, and it wasn't one of the laws that God gave to Moses. These were extra rules that religious men had invented and imposed upon themselves and upon others just to be safe. That was the view, just to be safe. And of course, the problem with rules, and in fact, even with the laws that God gave His people, is that they might well show you the way to live. They might well teach you what a good and even a clean life looks like. But on their own, those laws and rituals are powerless to help you achieve it. They say to you, this is the way, but they offer you no hand to get there. Often when people look at this miracle in John 2, they reflect on how much wine Jesus made. Each of these six water jars filled to the brim, what, 150 gallons of wine? But I think it works the opposite way as well. 
I mean, look at how much water there is in these water pots. 150 gallons? That's an awful lot of ceremonial washing. But this is the thing with mere religious rituals. It doesn't matter how many times you multiply them. It doesn't matter how many times you do them. You can be a six water jars kind of person. It's still not going to get you to your goal. Cleanliness before God is a right concern, but if we take the wrong road towards cleanliness, then we'll never get there, regardless of how far we drive or how fast we travel. And so, self-improvement, law observance, doing our best, these are not the ways to get there. They are not the ways to be clean before God, even if you jump in with six water jars full of it. No, what Jesus does here is something that is symbolically very significant. He takes these water jars, which are there as part of the the religious purification rites, and He repurposes them. He gives them a new purpose. He has them filled to the brim with water, And as the servants draw out of those jars, they find wine. And not just wine. As we read the story, the best wine. And that's, I mean, there's so much that's surprising about that. I I can recall an occasion, uh, Amy and I were to be hosting some people for Sunday lunch. We we, We had worked to prepare everything in advance And actually, I really only had one job to do, one job, I promise you, and that was to figure out how to use the timer on the oven so that everything would be cooked and ready by the time we got back from church. Anyway, it turns out I didn't know how to use the timer on the oven. And uh, when we got home, the pie had been in the oven for a good hour and a half too long, Uh, burnt beyond edibility. Now, in that situation, we've run out of food and the guests are coming. What do you do? Okay, there's a co-op around the corner and you just get whatever you can, right? It's an emergency. The pie would have been great. You're going to have this microwave meal now instead. We will take anything in this emergency situation. But this is not what Jesus is like. He produces the best wine. You know, this is one of these things the, the groom would have taken anything. Anything will do. Jesus produces the best. The master of the feast is blown away by this wine that he tastes. He doesn't know where it's come from, and he thinks, he thinks it's the groom's generosity. There's the laugh of it all that allows the best wine to be consumed when the guests are least likely to appreciate it. And as a first sign in Jesus' ministry, this miracle at the wedding feast reveals to us some of the trajectories that Jesus' ministry is on. So we say, why this sign? Well, because it reveals to us some of the principles of what Jesus has come to do. I mean, the most obvious one is Jesus' readiness to rescue the groom from shame. That really stands out to me. This is a groom who's, who's headed for ruin in his local community. Jesus understood the severity of the situation The groom has nothing in his own power to remedy the situation. It's too late. But Jesus does not let him fall into shame. 
The second thing I would point out is that what Jesus does here is credited to the groom. I mean, the master of the feast, he doesn't praise Jesus for the new wine. He doesn't know that's where it came from. He praises the groom for the seemingly generous act. The miraculous thing that Jesus has done is to the credit of someone else. And these things are but a shadow of the significance of what Jesus has come to do. God created human beings to know Him, to trust Him, to live lives that honor Him. And the story of the human race, and in fact your story and mine, is that we have not done that. Worse than that, we have deliberately set about doing the opposite of that. That is the root of the brokenness in our world. That is the root of our brokenness in our relationships. That is the root of the brokenness of our relationship with God. And God tells us what He's like. He tells us what a life lived for Him looks like, but on our own, we don't have the capacity to get there. We have been broken by sin. We're not what God made us to be, and we're heading for the worst of all shames, facing God, the good and pure and perfect judge, and standing before Him, lacking goodness, filled with impurity and imperfection. And He will condemn us if that's how we stand before Him. It is the ultimate shame. But God sees the situation sees the shame that we are heading for, and He intervenes. This is Jesus' mission. And the solution that Jesus gives is not some ritual for cleansing us. I want to assure you of that today, that Jesus did not come simply to give us another list of rituals to do to try and get right with God. He won't do that. Instead, Jesus provides what we really need. He gives us Himself. His readiness to intervene when we are headed to shame is what will lead Him to the cross. It's there that He will bear the ultimate shame. At the hands of men who would crucify Him, they will pour out their scorn upon Him, but the ultimate shame is what He endures on the cross before God because on the cross, sins are dealt with, but not His sin. He had none. No, on the cross, Jesus deals with the sins of all who will come to Him, as, will come to him in faith and receive the gift of grace. It's more than just receiving forgiveness of sins. It's receiving Jesus Himself. It is to be closely joined to Him so that everything that is yours becomes His. And that is a bad deal for Him. He gets all of my sin. All of that becomes His. And everything that is His becomes mine. That includes His perfect life of obedience to God. In a sense, the perfect life that Jesus has lived all who come to Him in faith, they will get the credit for it. They will get the credit for what Jesus has done. 
because they belong to him. The last significance of this sign that I want to mention is that it takes place at a wedding banquet. I don't think that's an accident. Because this picture of a wedding is the image that God uses to describe where all of history is heading. It's heading towards a wedding banquet. Jesus is laying on a wedding banquet. This time, he is the groom, and he is celebrating his marriage, his, his union with his people, all those who've come to trust in him. And Jesus is the perfect bridegroom. He's provided and he will provide everything that is needed for fullness of joy that will last forever. There'll be no need for water pots for ceremonial cleansing, for all who belong to Jesus have been cleansed thoroughly. Cleansed from all their sin, from all the guilt of their sin, and from everything and anything that could ever cut them off from knowing God's. And so, whenever we read the gospel, and particularly as we're reading these signs that Jesus did, you know what? We're reading an invitation to a wedding feast, an invitation to God's wedding feast, an invitation to come and know Jesus Christ. He is the rescuer of humanity the one who replaces our empty efforts to be right with God with what we really need, Him. And I offer Him to you today. Come as you are. Come to Him. We would love to give you a copy of John's Gospel. Read these signs for yourself. Or someone who you know who's a Christian would love to read that with you, I'm sure. But also for every Christian who's here today, to have confidence in Jesus Christ and to know that here and now we have a foretaste of that great wedding feast that is coming. The significance of replacing the burden of those water pots would just remind people of how much they need to keep going back to try another cleansing and try another cleansing. He replaces it all with something that brings joy and delight that's who Jesus is, and that's who Jesus will be for you. Christian, remind yourself of who this Jesus is and all that he's done and all that he's promised to do, and if you haven't yet trusted him, he stands here for you. And if anyone would want to speak with me about anything that we've mentioned here after the service, I'll be down in that corner. We'd love to do that with you.